Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Let me pray for us before we get rolling. Lord, you've given us your word, and uh, it is a good, good word. Um, Jesus says in the New Testament that not one part of this word, not one jot or tittle, not one dotting of the I or crossing of a T will fade until all has been accomplished. And so it is our privilege to hear from you. So give us ears to hear, hearts to worship, and hands to apply this text to our lives. And we pray for all of this in your name. Amen. So we are back. After a long season uh, of break in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it was kind of the end of November that we paused, and part of that was because I wanted to pause and come back to what we're looking at today in time for New Year's. This is like my New Year's text, and you guys read what Paul said, and you're like, I don't know why he would choose this as his New Year's text, but this is where we are. I think it's really fitting for what's going on culturally around New Year as we look at January and look at fresh starts and, and new beginnings. And we're beginning chapter 12 today, which make up kind of the second big portion of Deuteronomy, which stretches from chapter 12 to chapter 26. And in the first 11 chapters, Moses, who is God's prophet, is preaching a sermon to God's people, reminding them of God's amazing works of grace and bringing them out of slavery and bringing them to the promised land. He's reminding them of how they've failed, but how God has been incredibly gracious to them. And as Moses is preaching... He's on the plains of Moab, and they are looking over the river into the promised land. And they probably have a lot of emotions towards this promised land, as you might have towards the promise of a new year. In the promised land is the possibility of new starts, of new beginnings, of good habits. For the people of Israel, it was this trifecta we've seen all throughout Deuteronomy, that the the, the perfect place, the thing that God's people long for is a place that had three things. God's people, living in God's place, under God's rule, with his presence. And it was in this promised land where that was there. And so they were wondering, just as you might be wondering, as soon as January 1st hits, now that we're here, how is our life different? What does it look like when we finally get there? For us, it might be, looking into the new year, how can I balance my budget? How can I get my degree? How can I get better at blank? whatever it is. And that's why I love this text. We're starting Bible reading plans, and none of the plans open up to tell you to read Deuteronomy 12 through 26. Because if you did, you'd probably wish you'd never started reading the Bible. Because we'll read it, and on the surface, it's a bunch of laws that seem so foreign and so abstract and so weird, not only to us as um, Christians sometimes, but also to us as just 21st century people. These were written a long, long time ago. But it is these laws, specifically when we look back through the lens of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has communicated in the New Testament, that we see God's grace and we hear the goodness of God's word. You see, what I love about the New Year is we start shifting from theoretical to practical, from what we want to do to how it is we're going to do it. And these laws remind us of the wonderful truth that God's good news of salvation practically changes your life. 
in real, tangible ways. It changes all of it. This includes, as we'll see over the next month going through this section, it includes Israel's diet, it includes their health care, it includes their social justice, it includes their legal systems, their generosity, and their power structures. All of those things are still hot-button issues today. Aren't we looking for someone to tell us how to care for the poor? Someone to tell us how to have clear structures of authority which serve instead of abuse. Someone to tell us what it looks like to be generous and to care for the outsider. And as we look at these things, as detailed and specific as we are, we're reminded all the more of God's wonderful grace. God's grace changes things. It really does. And today, Moses is starting this specific portion of Scripture by getting at the one thing that is above all of the things when it comes to our practical walk with God, and that's worship. God cares about your worship. He cares about what it looks like when you worship, who you worship, and why you worship. This past September, Union Seminary, which is one of the oldest seminaries in the country, hosted a chapel. So seminary, it's this Christian school chapel, this place where believers gather to hear God's word, really similar to a church service. And this is what they said. They said, today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief Joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? We have plants sitting on the windowsill of our sink and I confess daily to them that I'm causing you to die. <laughs> they, very, they rarely get water. And I've rarely said anything besides like, oh, I wish Sarah would water those because I don't actually know how much to water plants. I don't know, is there like a ratio or something? <laughs> I have four kids, but I can't take care of a plant. Um, so pray for them. But as silly as this might sound, confessing to plants, these were self-professing Christians They did it out of a desire of their heart to follow God. They did it in a chapel, a place where people had gathered. They did it with sincerity of heart. There was music. But was it worship? Was it true worship? In fact, those are questions we should be asking as we consider worship music or Bible reading plans or going to church or even just praying to God in this new year. And it's this question and the practice of this question in our gathered community as the church, which Moses wants us to see in the gathered community of Israel. Moses is going to outline for Israel four principles of true worship, principles which apply directly to us today. And what we're going to see this morning is this is that true worship does four things. It displaces false worship, pleases God, builds up others, and offers our finest. True worship displaces false worship, it pleases God, it builds up others, and it offers our finest. So with that said, let's read uh, our first portion of Deuteronomy 12 today, which is verses 1 through 7. These are the statutes and the rules 
that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and every, under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods, destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And so here, God's people stand, looking out over the land, and Moses motions probably even to what they can see and looks at the false temples and the pillars and the idols and he says, your worship, people of God, cannot look like this. You must not worship God in this way. And yet it's true. It was God by his grace, by his will, by his miraculous might that he took a people held in captivity and brought them here and were putting them into the promised land. But just because God's grace brought them into their destination, brought them out of slavery into the promised land, it did not mean that their journey was over. Despite finally getting to the land, Moses reminds them that this is only the beginning of obedient worship. The same is true when we think about our salvation. Sometimes we think that once we're saved, we could just disregard following God. And that makes sense if we have a legalistic view of salvation. If we can earn our salvation, if it is a prize to be won, once we have that prize, we can rest. We can do whatever we want to do because we've purchased it from the store, we went home, we threw away the receipt, no one's taking it from us. But that assumes that salvation is a reaction to our greatness that God rewards. But salvation is a response to God's grace. And that continues. God's grace does not stop. Praise God when we are saved. His grace continues. So our response should be obedience all the more. And you see that in that verse. Here as they are getting into the land that God promised them, the good land, Moses says, you will obey all the days of your life, as long as you are on this earth. Think of it this way. This April, the greatest sporting event in the calendar year will happen. The NFL draft has nothing to do with sports, but it appeals to me. And during that time, some 400 college athletes will be drafted to play in the NFL. And in that moment when their name is read, they belong legally to the National Football League. They are legally no longer a college football player. They are players in the National Football League immediately when their name is read. And yet, that's not the end, is it? That's just the beginning of living life in their new identity. 
while they have been converted in title, they've been given access to world-class nutritionists, trainers, and workout facilities, there is still a conversion yet to be made. There is still growth to be had. And if you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been declared new. You have been declared righteous in him by Jesus' wonderful righteousness. And yet, it is not the end. It is only the beginning to be obeyed and listened to and lived out all the days of your life still by grace. Now, if you remember, this is important when Moses is talking about these idols in the land. Because this is the land. This is like everyone dreams of the land. You have the land, some idea of a land where everything is perfect. You have that picture in your head. And when you get there, everything will be great. And so these are what the people are imagining about this land. But back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses reminded these people when they were wandering in the wilderness of how they worshipped the Baal of Peor. The Baal of Peor was this idol, the Baal, the idol at Peor. And so these people understood that outside of the land, there are all sorts of threats, all sorts of false gods vying for their attention. But here Moses is pointing out that just because you get into the land does not mean that all of the temptation to worship things which are not God will be removed. In other words, when you become a Christian, don't be surprised when temptation, when idols still exist. They don't magically go away. And because of that, Moses prescribes to this nation, Israel, to actively and even violently wield their sledgehammers against these physical and tangible places of religious influence. And what's interesting is we know from other points in Deuteronomy, there are seven nations who live inside this land that Israel is going in to dispossess. And Moses assumes, Moses hadn't been in the land, but Moses knows that in the land, people will worship. Moses knows Everyone worships. It's just that some people worship idols which can be destroyed by the hands of humans. And other people worship the hands which created the world. Everyone worships. The difference is in what we worship. What Moses is after here is he's not trying to convince God's people to worship. He's trying to convince God's people to worship in true worship. To worship the only God who exists. The only God who could provide for his people a place of rest and belonging and satisfaction and salvation. The only God who is worth responding to. You see, sin preys on our worship. It comes to us and it offers us that if we give to it our time, our money, our wealth, or our affection, you'll get everything you want. Come and sacrifice on this altar. Come and bow down to the ashram. And because of that, because this world is filled with altars trying to satisfy something which only God can satisfy, he tells God's people to get rid of it, to physically go to chop, to burn, to destroy, to wipe it out. Because we don't need any more temptation than what is already in our world. In the New Testament, God doesn't call us to go violently destroy things. But the Bible does call us to be violent. Violent against the sin in our hearts. 
Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member than for your whole body to go into hell. You hear that same language that Moses used. Consider also Paul in Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, when we think of worship, we often think of worship only as kind of this pure response to something which is beautiful and true. And certainly that's part of worship. But worship also involves, according to God, the active destroying of lesser and dangerous things which seek to tap our exclusive affection for God. Worship includes not only the adoration of what is good in God, but also the active putting away of what is less than God. And what I love about this passage is it involves a corporate effort. Moses isn't saying to like, hey, Israelite Kyle, because that was a really common name back then. Kyle, when we get in there, it's your job. You're going to be the temple hunter. You go and do this. He says, all of you, Go, tear it down, chop it, burn it, get rid of it. This new year here in this church, we have an obligation not only to help ourselves fight sin, but we have an obligation in our lives, in our church, to remove things that might even cause others to fall. We might not have temples and pillars as visible as it were in this day, but each of us can think of ways in which our worship circles around the altar of sex, of sports, of schedules, even of family or money. So when you think of the threats in your own heart, what are some things that need to go? To not just be turned from. Because right, we, we do see in here, there's two parts. Destroy, but then he also says, seek. I'm going to set my name on a place. I'm going to dwell in a place. Seek that place. So you can, you should seek what is good, but it is held in tandem to destroying what is dangerous. Worship is not only the elated times of joyful singing, it's also the quiet and painful moments of wrenching the altars of sin from our heart. If you assess your own life soberly, are there places, objects, spheres in your life which demand the similar affection, dedication, or emotion that God does, where they compete at that level. And if so, they need to go. They need to be destroyed. They need to be cut out. Or, we've seen earlier in Deuteronomy, what Jesus himself says, you will find that you are the one being destroyed. You are the one in danger of destruction. True worship displaces what is false because it holds fast to what is true. Our next two pictures of true worship come from the same text that we'll read now, which is verses 8 through 14. Moses says this, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet as come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. 
But when you go over into the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite. We'll talk more about the Levite as we go on in January. That is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see, but at the place the Lord will choose. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I am commanding you. So, here we begin to see this new aspect of worship. And the first thing we see in here is that true worship pleases God. True worship pleases God. Now, it's a really tricky thing, and maybe you've foolishly said so in blunt ways and you found yourself in a world of trouble, to go up to somebody and to say, please don't worship God like that. That's always a sticky situation because we feel that if we mean it, if we're thinking godly thoughts while doing it, if it's got Christian words like gospel or Jesus or spirit, then certainly it must be worship. And you're right. All of it is worship. That's not the question, is it? The question is, is it true worship? Is it worship which honors God? Is it worship responding to the salvation that God has brought us in Jesus Christ in right ways? You see, the Israelites were soon going to face a challenge, not long after they cross over into the promised land. They're going to face a challenge of how they want to worship. And they're going to be forced to make a decision. Do they want to worship Yahweh? Do they want to worship the God of the Bible like Yahweh prescribes here? Going to the place and offering sacrifices. It's not even an exhaustive list of sacrifices, but seven. There's seven sacrifices that Moses is talking about here. Do you want to worship God by traveling and sacrificing, or do you want to worship God like the Canaanites worship their gods, which includes drawing near to God by sleeping with a prostitute? Which is more appealing to you? Which sounds better if they're all baptized in the name of God, which would you choose? Why do we confess our sins to God and God alone and not a plant? Does it matter how we worship God? It certainly seems so, doesn't it? Moses makes it clear that worship is not rampant personal preference, but it's specific. Moses says, do not do as you're doing. Everyone is worshiping God how they see fit in their own eyes. It is so personalized, it is so diverse that it is doing nothing towards true worship. He says, don't do what's right in your eyes. Instead, do what I command. God is going to tell us what we're to do with our true worship. And the truth is, it's really easy to make worship about oneself. I struggle with this just as much as you guys do. It becomes less about God and more about us. Think about it. Think about when, you, when someone says, what do you need to worship? 
How do we answer that question? We want to feel a certain way. We want to experience a certain experience. And our assessment at the end has to do with how we experienced it. We are at the center of it. Now, don't forget, we just saw, right, there in verse 6, that the center of this Israelite worship experience, there is massive rejoicing, rejoicing in everything you undertake. But what is at the center of the worship of God? What is the true joy at the center of the worship experiences that Moses is here prescribing? We'll look back at verses 4 and 5. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. The center, the joy of true worship is the presence of God. In contrast to everything the world offers, all these various shrines in all these different places, there will be one place where God is. And where that God is, where his presence has come to dwell, there you will find joy. Worship is not dependent upon your presence. It is dependent upon God's presence. And for us, the presence of God is no longer confined to one specific place, but is confined in the gospel. It is only through what Christ has done to deal with our sins and bring us to God that we can ever encounter the presence of God which we so desperately need. Meaning this, and this is so hard for us in our consumeristic culture because churches copy culture. But Moses is saying here, don't copy culture. Copy what I say. This means this. It is the gospel. Not lights. Not music. Not a preacher. Not an atmosphere which produces worship. It is encountering God's presence through his gospel that leads to worship and nothing else. We don't start it. We don't cultivate it. We don't lead it. God has given it to us in his gospel and we respond to it. So be careful of of what you think in these places. It sounds harsh because we've built up a palette for liking the decor of worship without the heart of worship. But what I love about this text And to you who say, geez, who's this God who can speak to us like this? Who's this guy who thinks he could tell me how I should worship? I love the grace Moses has here because did you see what he said uh, back in verse 8? He says this, he says, you don't seek what seems right to you. He says, you've all done it. We're all doing it here. But when we get to the land, we need to stop. When we see the place in all of its glory, it'll all make sense to us. And as that begins to filter it through, we're going to no longer want to worship as our eyes see it, but we're going to worship in a way which pleases the sight of God. As we grow, we lay aside the centrality of us and we pick up the centrality of God. 
Look at this in contrast to what he says in verses 25, which we'll look at in a bit in 28. But the holy things, or excuse me, 25, you shall not eat of it that it may go well with you and with your children after you. When you do what is right, not in your sight, but in the sight of the Lord. Verse 28, be careful to observe all these words, obey all these words I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Todd Miles came and preached here. Um, one of my friends, a professor at a seminary, not a seminary that worships plants, one that worships God. <laughs> um, feel like I need to clarify now. Uh, came here and, and, and he brought this up, but I'm going to circumvent Todd and say Moses said this way before Todd did. When we assess the culture of worship in this church, which we should, we assess the culture of worship in other churches that we visit, we so quickly think, did I enjoy it? But the Bible calls us to think through the lens of, did it please God? Is this honoring to God in light of what he said, what he's given to us? And then the next question, it doesn't stop there. It says, did I please God? Did I respond in a way which pleases God? We aren't the center of worship God is, which is why Moses highlights what's at the middle, sacrifice. If worship is not about us, then it demands something from us. Some of those things that he lists are in direct fulfillment of the law, but many of those things are free will offerings of praise given to the wonderful abundance of what God has done for his people. Worship begins at what God has done and then drives forward to make much as a response. But despite that, there's another aspect of the community of worship. It is between you and God, and God is the center, but we also see the second point here that worship builds up others. Worship builds up others. And look back at what it says in verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, this might seem like a verse we just breeze over, but it's really important here. True worship, especially in a corporate setting like the nation of Israel or the New Testament church, isn't simply an experience between you and God. It is that, but it doesn't end there. It has a deeply corporate and communal effect. You see, in, in Hindu culture, there's this caste of people, one of the lower castes called the Dalit, which means the untouchables. And if you were born into this caste of people, you are one whom the gods have designated to a life of menial labor. They're not to be touched, not to be spoken to, not to be treated as humans, and nor are they to be given any sort of admittance to any sort of religious functions. Yet here, in contrast to this, and in contrast to this idea that Christianity is a mere expression of Western culture, we see that the worship of the true God has always been a place of radical diversity by God's grace. We saw that here. You come, women, children, servants, all are welcome to come to this God so long as they come in the way that God has called them so long as they are worshiping truly in the way that God has seen fit. In fact, what we'll see in Deuteronomy is that it's actually the corporate worship, the gathered worship of Israel, which is to be prioritized over the individual worship of the Israelite. And this is something that's carried over in the New Testament church as well. 
I think in this modern Western church, because it's echoing our consumer culture, when we think of worship, we typically only think of it in terms of individual expression. What makes you worship? What helps you worship? And we individualize it with our churches, with our podcasts, with our worship music. And there's degrees to which that is fine, but it doesn't work when it comes in context to what we do in the church. And in fact, the New Testament shows that it is this gathered church and the other gathered churches that are meeting during this time, which are not only places of worship, but places of privileged worship. In Ephesians, Paul makes it clear, this is as close to heaven as we get, this side of death. You look through Ephesians, look at all the privileges of the things we get to do together as the church, and it is beautiful. Look at how Paul emphasizes this issue to the church in Corinth, most of which Everyone is doing everything according to their own eyes. Whatever they, the individual wants to do in Corinth, they're doing in the church. And Paul is opposing almost all of it. But look at the grounds he uses in 1 Corinthians 10, verses uh, 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. The context of this is life in the local church. Paul says to the church in Corinth, there is so much liberty in how you worship God. There is no command of drumming that you should have drums, that you should have a PowerPoint. There's liberty. But that liberty that God gives is meant to be stewarded for the corporate good, to build others up, not just yourself. And then Paul goes on to talk about tongues, which we're super excited to talk about here today. That's what we were hoping to talk about, right? And tongues in this time is something that was either um, kind of a private prayer language that God would give to specific individuals or a miraculous utterance of, of new existing, different existing languages. But the point was, is at that time, when the church would gather in Corinth, kind of as a show of their own piety, people were just speaking in tongues all over the church. Were they genuinely stirred by the Holy Spirit? I think so. You don't see Paul say they weren't. But look at what Paul says about the nature of this gathering in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 4. Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, that is to speak the words of God. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then look at what he says in verses 18 through 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Your worship here in this church today, right now, is important because it not only increases your worship, but it actually helps my worship. Your worship builds my worship. There are a few things which shape our Sunday mornings more than this idea of how corporate our worship is meant to be in the New Testament church. We worship with the lights on Because we know that this isn't just a bunch of individuals coming to worship God in individual pods. This is the body of Christ coming to worship. 
We want to see who it is that we are worshiping with. We want to rejoice with them. We want to weep with them. We want to sing with them. One of our constant battles in this wonderfully tuned acoustic warehouse is to have the music loud enough to hear, but soft enough that we could hear other people singing. You want to hear my off-key voice. You want to hear me singing at the top of my lungs. Because then you might be like, I'm not as bad as that. I can sing loud too. But the point is that we're encouraging one another. That I'm not crazy. This gospel is good enough for me and all these people. One of the privileges, and I love, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul uses this phrase that we are individual members of one body. I love that idea. Individual members. Individual. God died specifically for you, but in the church, the many are made one. And I love, one of the privileges uh, of, of being a pastor is I get to know the wounds you guys have in your life. I get to see the struggles, the hurts, the burdens. And you know what? All of your elders wrestle with that too. And when we come here and we have hard and difficult weeks and we see you worshiping because Jesus in the midst of this mess is worth it. We say, man, it's worth it in my life too. It helps us. We help each other. You might be some super spiritual Christian to the way where you can actually think and and, and live a Christian life apart from the church and be fine, which is false, but maybe you could think that. But the truth is, I'm not strong enough to live without you here. It's one thing to think you need to come to church for your sake. But the New Testament says this is for our sake. So this New Year, as you're looking at your calendars and at your priorities, think not of yourselves, but think of others and how you schedule your Sunday mornings, even when you're visiting churches in other towns. God cares about all of that. So Moses has shown we ought not worship God as the other nations do. He's shown we ought not worship God according to our own whims. And now in closing, he's showing us we ought not worship God in cheap ways. And it is here where we see that true worship offers our finest. Now, in the passage we're going to look at right now, we run into some distinctly cultural issues. We're going to hear about eating meat and all sorts of meat. Actually, this is free. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Deuteronomy 12.20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you and say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you will eat meat whenever you desire. Amen. Okay? So we hear this weird stuff about meat and where you eat it and how you eat it. And to really understand why this is a blessing, why this is good that God put this in his word, we need to understand some context here. So, as the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, God said that they were free to eat any wild game that they caught. They could, if it, as long as it abided by a specific code, which we'll see later, I think in Deuteronomy 14, they could kill it and they could eat it. But if you wanted to eat a domestic animal from your flocks, like a cow or a sheep, you had to submit it to the central structure of worship. It had to participate in this kind of sacrificial uh, economy. And so that means that if you wanted to eat barbecue, you would have to take your cow, you'd have to go to the central place of worship, and they'd have to submit it there, and then you could take it and you could eat it there. But the good news was, is that while Israel was traveling, God gave them the tabernacle. This tabernacle was like a mobile home of God's glory. It traveled with God's people. 
And they would stop for camp and they would set up the tabernacle and God's presence would be there and it would be wonderful, which meant if you were craving some ribs, all you had to do was go to the center of camp and the priest would help you take care of it. But now we're running into this problem. God is not going to have this mobile tabernacle. Three times already in this text, we see that God is going to establish a place, a specific place, which means as they get into the land and God, by his grace, is expanding his borders, you might have Israelites who can't just go to the center of camp, but they might have to travel days to get to the central place of worship. But look at what Moses says in Deuteronomy 15, or 12, 15 through 21. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and of the deer. So those are the approved foods at the time. You only shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat it within your towns, the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil, of your firstborn, of your herd, or of your flock, or of any vow offerings that you vow, your free will offerings or the contribution you present, right? This is the third time we've seen that list of sacrifices in this text. But you shall eat them, that's those sacrifices, before the Lord your God, in the place the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your town. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you not neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat wherever you desire. If the place the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. You may eat it within your towns whenever you desire. So here we see still this corporate uh, tabernacle, temple, sacrifice system, but there's this wonderful concession that God gives to his people. Did you see it? God says, if when you get in the land, this place, he hasn't yet told them where the place is, if this place is too far from you, eat your meat. How kind is this God? He didn't need to do it. He gave them wild game. They had plenty of other things they could eat. But God in his mercy is giving them a concession to enjoy good food if they might be too far from his place. And the truth is that just like this meat, everything we enjoy in this world was meant to be offered back to God. Everything deserves to be brought to God and presented as holy. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16. Did I put that up there or did I leave it out? I think I left it out. Let me go there. This is what happens when... I'm in charge of things. Colossians 1 verse 16 says this, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. All of creation is created by God to be enjoyed by God, but in common ways, God has given us things to enjoy apart from him. What does this mean? It means that believers and non-believers can enjoy barbecue and say, this is delicious. Believers and non-believers can look at sunsets and be struck by the beauty of it. Believers and non-believers 
can stand in awe of the majesty of mountains because God has given us things commonly to enjoy. Graciously, God stands behind it, but out of his immense mercy, he has given it not only to his people, but to all people. But there's a danger here. There's a danger both in the consumption and in the common grace that God gives Israel. And we see this danger in verses 26 through 28. But the holy things that are due from you, your vow offerings, you shall take and you shall go to the place the Lord your God will choose and offer your burnt offerings and the flesh of the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifice shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So what's the danger here? The danger is this. You're an Israelite. You've had a good long week of barbecue. You've had some good uh, like mutton chops, some brisket. And it comes time to eat. You've got one cow left. You've done all of this in the confines of your backyard. It's been great. You've been able to hang out with the kids. You've had the neighbors over. But this one cow that's left is a firstborn of your flock. And you know that God's law requires the firstborn of your flock, the first yield of your produce to be offered, as we saw in Deuteronomy 26, as a holy thing, which is due to the Lord. The problem is, you're a two days long, hard walk in the desert from the place that God will put his name. You might step back and you might say, well, I've eaten all my other livestock here I didn't displease God I ate the brother of this cow it was fine that's a long ways away what if I just stay here I've seen the priest sacrifice it before I'll I'll do some of the same things I'll say a super special prayer can I just stay here do I have to go to the place with the sacrifice and Moses says Yes, you do. God has given so much common grace to enjoy in this world, but sometimes a special worship is a costly worship. The quality of our worship matters. Moses knows that we will be tempted. We see it in our own lives. We see it throughout Scripture to cut corners and to provide to God things and efforts which are not our best. But if you've been saved by this God, if this God, this true and living God is your God, then it is due, you see that word? It is due that we offer them to God. If we were to assess the quality of our worship, would you find anything extraordinary about the way in which you worship God? Meaning this, when you look at the effort, the time, the emotion you put into worshiping God, coming to church, going to community group, reading your Bible, doing whatever it is, is it any different than just a backyard barbecue? Or is it just like everything else? Where we say, this is the amount of energy I give to X, it should be good enough for God. I'm convicted of this when it comes to my consumption 
of sports. Sports are wonderful things, things that God gave us. It's a common grace. It's good. And I know that sports take a long time. And I want to watch them, and my wife wants me to watch them, so I try to lift the burden of me watching sports. And so I'll come home, and I'll, I'll, I'll help her, and then I'll say to her, I, said, I say, honey, I'm about to sit down and watch a game. Is there anything I can do to help make sure the home is good and you could actually rest while I'm sitting down and resting? But I've never once been like, sweetheart, I'm about to sit down and do my devotions. Is there anything you need so we can both rest? Honey, I know Sunday's busy. Is there anything I can do this morning to make getting out of the church or getting to church on Sunday morning easier for our family? I know a guy who he and his buddy in college They made a pact with each other to not do any homework on Sundays, and that meant Saturday nights were nights in. The truth is, worship demands our best, not simply what's left. Now, maybe at this point in the message, I've totally killed your desire to worship. We came in here with worship as this wonderful, emotional self-expression, and now I'm telling you that worship involves the hard things of chopping altars and burning temples. Worship's not ultimately about you. It's not even secondarily about you, and worship demands your best. Get up and walk two days to the place. This seems burdensome. It seems like there hopefully can be a better place to go. But let's not forget that all worship is a response to an object of worth. Make no place. It is costly, or make no mistake, it is costly to go to God's place. Six times in this text, Moses doesn't tell us where the place is, but he says, Israel, go to the place. In this place, God will put his name. In this place, God will dwell and make his habitation among his people. In this place, God will take your sacrifices and accept them. You know your sin demands death, but in this place, it can be the death of something else. And God will accept it. And you could live, you can bring what is ordinary and God will make it sacred. Twice, he says, if you can make it to this place, if you can get to this wonderful place, it will go well with you and with your offspring after you. Three more times, he says, if you make it to this place, you will rejoice in everything that you undertake, you and everyone else with you. We all want the place. And all of us, are trying to get to a place. But you've got to go. And each of us are willing to offer sacrifices to the nth degree of various kinds to get to the place we think we need to be. But the story of the Old Testament is that the place, even when it was so near to Israel, was always too far. 
even when they found the temple and the temple was built and Jerusalem was identified as this place, this special city of God, it still led to immense confusion in worship, immense chaos. Altars kept popping up all over. It was hard to get to the place and endured for thousands of years. So much so that there was a, a young lady, a Samaritan, she was caught in the middle of these worship wars. But she had a conversation with a Jewish man she had never met, a man named Jesus, in John 4, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Who is called the Christ? When he comes, he will tell you all, or tell us all things. When he comes, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us the place. He'll tell us where we can finally go. And Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. You see, there is a chasm between where we are and where true worship lies. And our sin has blockaded us from ever getting to that place. We have no access to righteousness, to cleanliness, to joy, because we can't get to the place on our own. But in Jesus, God's place came to us. John 4, or John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It lived with us. Jesus is the place we go so that we might be made clean. Jesus is the sacrifice that God accepts on our behalf so that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus is the place to go where we can rejoice with us and with all who worship with us. Jesus is where we go to finally have rest at every border. Jesus is the place to go that is not a location, but is a devotion to be gone to daily in faith. Jesus is the place to go where the whole structure is inverted. Where instead of us bringing things to God that God might declare those things clean, Christ has brought us to God so that we might be declared clean. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul, I'm going to wait for the amen on this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you hear Moses here? Listen, do you hear Moses? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, in Christ Jesus, our worship becomes about far more than rites and rituals. It becomes an all-of-life response to the God who has saved us. And everything we do, we do for his glory. We put to death the things that are false. We seek the God who is glorious. We lift up our brothers and sisters in faith. And we offer him all that we have. For Jesus has brought us true worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that this new year is typified by the newness you've given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that just as Moses' address was to a community of faith, that this community of faith might champion not cheap worship, not worldly worship, not comfortable worship, but true worship. That we might not worship God as the world does, but we might worship him as he has commanded us. That we might celebrate the presence which we are given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we might offer all of our hearts, thoughts, and affections as an act of worship. A sacrifice made clean, not by our own worth, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.